Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good afternoon from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom and I have two very, very special guests. Tom, I, I'm giddy. I'm too. Normally when we do this many kind of in a day, I'm usually like, oh, by the time I get yeah. to the third one, I'm no. a little tired. No, I'm not no. tired. Not feeling any t- any tired at all today. <laughs> not having a single problem. So if you listen to us a while back, we had Jeff North and his son, John Hartley, on with us. And we just talked about a father-son consulting deal. So this is the same day. Jeff is still here. But we also have Tucker Miller in the studio with us. These guys have checked a lot of cotton over the years <laughs> and a lot of other stuff, too. Like I said, when we hit start, we're just going to go unscripted and see where the conversation goes. Try not to talk too long, and I'm not going to try to say anything at all. I just want to hear what these guys got to say. So, Tucker, I always ask folks a question, and my question is for you because I've picked on Jeff before. I know you're a little bit of a foodie. He's not a little yeah. bit. He can be a lot in that direction. Uh, uh, aside from your own, best hot tamales. Oh, best hot tamales. Uh, aside from my own, uh, probably a lady that lived in Drew years ago. She sold hot tamales in a coffee can sitting up on top of a radiator in the house, one of these house registers, you know, that used to heat the house, and that's yeah. where she sold them. And I was intrigued by that so much that uh, I'm going to – those were the best. Uh, they were the best. And uh, she wouldn't give me the recipe, so I had to figure out how <laughs> how, to, how to make my own, and I have finally gotten close, you know. But one of my hobbies in the off-season is to cook. I make salsa, I know. hot tamales, all that kind of stuff. And it's, I can't, it's kind of a stress reliever and – you can sit, get, catch you a whiskey front coming in, and you can sit there and make hot tamales all day. <laughs> and it's a pretty involved process, isn't it? Yeah, it, uh, it it takes, like I said, it takes two or three hours. So, you know, we said if it rains or if we get a good cold front in and there's nothing to do, you know, you can sit down and make hot tamales. You got to roll them out and get the meat mixture right and then roll them in time, and then it takes a couple of hours to steam them. So it's an all-afternoon event. What's your favorite meat source for a hot tamale? Well, it needs to be lean. I use venison a lot. It doesn't have a lot of fat in it, you know, and you don't want the greasy hot tamale. So, yeah. That's right. Venison is what I use on most of them. Tell people, because a lot of folks might not know, we got folks from other states. What's the history on hot tamales in the Delta? I mean, because it's a thing Delta-wide. It's a, it's a thing Delta-wide. You know, they, they make them over here at Leland at the, uh, what's the name of that uh Fancy restaurant, uh, Cicero's. Cicero's. They do that, and they and they have them all over. And they have, and of course, hot, we, yeah, we got the Hot Tamale Festival in Greenville. Hot Tamale Festival. And there's a Hot Tamale Trail that people uh, and I used to be on the Hot Tamale Trail. Destinations all over the state, right. and I've had uh, I've had people drive up to my house on motorcycles before and said, "Is this the Hot Tamale Trail spot?" I said, "Yeah, I I have some in the freezer if you want <laughs> if you want some, but." It's a it's a big history behind it, and uh, I, I don't know exactly where it started or how it started. I think, of course, they they made them in South Texas and Mexico and all that, and I think it was kind of a poor man's kind of just a, some meal and a little bit of meat and rolled it up, you know. Right. But they're good now, and it's it's fun to make them, especially if you can get two or three people to help you. If you can get if you can get somebody rolling the meat and then somebody wrapping, 
and somebody tying, you know, you can you can make a little assembly line going there and get through quicker. It's part of the social life of the Delta, too. Oh, yeah. It's just yeah. a party. You, you want to weigh in on hot tamales? With oh, I love them, too. I don't make them. I, I get mine from Tucker. But <laughs> uh, my forte is uh, pear preserves. I make a lot of jellies and pepper jellies and things like that. But my mom and I had a... A uh, long-standing tradition that we made pear preserves every single year in the middle of August, and I still carry on that tradition today. And and I'll come to Tucker's duck hunting and bring pear preserves, and he'll give me pepper jelly, and we'll slice Mississippi State Valigarette cheese and have a party. Tom, was that on the podcast we were talking about preserves and jams and jellies and that they were different? But yes. I can't remember who that was, was recently. Yeah, I don't remember who we were talking See, this to. This is funny. You're the one that said that you weren't going to say anything on this episode, and I'm the one that's just kind of sitting here soaking it all in. That's well, we what happens when you're not local. You can sit back and just enjoy the banter that goes on, and I'll make some jellies every now and again uh, when I have like a chance. The uh, no one really knows. There's there's always a big discussion about the difference between molasses, sorghum molasses, and sugarcane molasses. Truthfully, we think of sorghum molasses, old thick, heavy, black-looking salve you put on a biscuit, tear it half in two, versus the sugar ribbon cane syrup. Which is, but which technically, is real thin. yeah, it's thinner. But technically, the sugarcane is the molasses, and sorghum is the uh, is the syrup. But we we call them so- sagram. Sagram molasses. <laughs> Tucker, we said Jeff's been on with us before and a couple times and, and told folks kind of what he does. So take a minute and introduce yourself and what you do and, and how long you've been doing it. I have a, uh, vivid memories of how I first got started in this. In 1968, my daddy sent me to a scouting school in Batesville, Mississippi. And Dr. Young, remember Dr. Young? David Young. David he was Young our executive secretary for years. For years, mm-hmm. and he was there. And a man named James Lowe worked for ICI for years. He was there, and I, have a, I still have a picture of that. And I was like 15 years old, and we were all out in a cotton field, and the, the young guys that were trying to learn something were all kneeled down looking at cotton, a little small cotton. And I remember that, and, and I think my dad sent me there so I could uh, check our cotton, his cotton. And that's what I started doing when I was 15 years old, and I hadn't stopped yet. So I think I've actually made 54 crops as a consultant, I think. <laughs> half a century, over half a century. Yeah, I know it's over 50. So he's got a little time on you, Jeff. He does. got he, a little time. He got me by 10, so... Uh, <laughs> And I hope he uh, keeps me by 10 for a long, long time. <laughs> oh, we do too. <laughs> yeah, but that was, you know, that was back back in the day, you know, we didn't know a whole lot. And the good thing about it, I know when we first started out, you know, extension, we had some differences uh, with extension and some of the private consultants. But nowadays, the private consultants, and I think Jeff will allude to this as well, uh, we rely on extension and the researchers like you guys for just about everything. And we are so blessed to have the best, I think, the best in the whole South, East, or whatever region you want to call this, Mid-South, of you guys keeping us abreast of the new new things and working with us. And this made our job a lot easier to uh, to do when we can 
consult with y'all as well. well y'all make our job pretty easy. That's <laughs> it, it hasn't it, always been like that. It's it, been an evolution. It's been an evolution. It has. Years, at, at one time, it was like Jeff oh, said. It was, decades ago, it was um, headbutting a lot of times with extension and disagreements and in the turf war, for lack of better words. And over time, I don't know what the change was or how it came about, but now our best friends and colleagues are extension and private consultants. The it's a it's a tight, close unit now. And years ago, in the in the seventies, early seventies and late seventies, it was not like that. But it's become an evolution that it's a it's a fine tuned machine. Us working with each other now, it's 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 a cool thing to watch. I know I rely on y'all. Just example, you know, if I get wind of something, somebody sees an issue, and like, man, that sounds not sure about that. I know I can call either one of y'all and a whole laundry list of other guys too, and and get a real honest assessment of what's going on in the area you're covering, and whether this issue is really an issue or whether it's kind of a one-off deal that kind of isolated. So we certainly appreciate that. Tucker, so your dad was a cotton farmer. My dad was a cotton farmer. In Drew. In Drew, Mississippi, North Sunflower County. Consultant, I mean, that wasn't a thing at the time, right? It was not a thing at the time. I I, I know that the county agent was the thing at the time, would come out and make recommendations and and, and things like that. And And see, uh, even when I was a young guy, the county agent in our county, he had a big cotton checking program. That's exactly the way it was with us. And I don't know where or how the change came about but but uh my dad sent me like i said to to a scouting school when i was 15 years old and a, a couple of other guys in the area sent their sons you know it's kind of a, like a that was pretty forward thinking pretty, pretty forward, I, I guess it was i uh, I, I survived it and, and my dad survived it. my dad <laughs> he made he made 50 50 crops before he retired we started with bow weevils, and from day one, you know, we just had to keep progressing, keep learning about the different weeds and the different insects. and Had some harsh chemistries in. The oh, yeah. Dildrin, Indrin, Aldrin, DDT, 421, Toxmethyl, yeah. you yeah. call them all. All those stuff. Oh, yeah, 6333. We had all kinds of heavy phosphates. At Man, one point. You, you know you're a bad dude if you don't even get a name. You just get the number. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, four, two, four, one. that's the toxic stuff there, Tom. <laughs> yeah. We progressed. You know, when we first started, you know, it wasn't really uh, – plant bugs now are one of our major pests. Sure. And back in those days, we didn't even know what a plant bug was, you know, and we – I tell you how we figured out what plant bugs were doing to us is when we, when the pyrethroids first came out. You know we were spraying these worms so bad with three three and six three and everything in the world and couldn't control them. And the pyrethroids first came out, and I was in graduate school at that time, and I got to test them while I was in graduate school, and I knew how good they were. So when I came out and started recommending, you know, to my con- clients pyrethroids they thought that i knew everything in the world because we were killing these ones <laughs> man you know and they and they couldn't wait to put out a pyrethroid i think pydrin and ambush, ambush and pounce pounce were the yeah. first ones and they would carry it around in the back of their truck wanting to put it out so when can we do this again you know but, but it would last so long you know then we went through resistance and that and that didn't work and so we've seen a lot over the years. It was a lot of fun going through all that, I guess. 
We survived it anyway. <laughs> or have until now. Up right? until now. But I have faith in the researchers and the, and the consultants now that we'll work through this. We'll, we'll keep going. You know, Dr. Howard Chambers, in toxicologist and insecticide chemist at State for decades, taught you, Tucker, taught me, taught my son. At one time in the early 80s when pyrethroid resistance for tobacco budworm was beginning to make its presence on the, in the, on the landscape, there was a big discussion of whether or not to use synthetic pyrethroids early season on the June budworm. And if you let, you know, June budworms would shell you. I mean, they would stop it from blooming, to keep it from blooming. And our position was as consultants, like, protect that crop, set that crop early, get out of the field. And they were saying, hold these pyrethroids till later when you really needed them, heavier pressure. And it was a big dilemma. And I never will forget Dr. Howard Chambers in a, in a consultant meeting. He said, I have faith in industry. I say use the technology, and it was like open the gate, boys. Here we go. <laughs> so we did that a lot. June worms, like like Jeff said, were a big problem. Once we found out how good the pyrethroids were, that we could we we killed those worms in June, and our yields went up drastically because we had set that early crop. We were able to finish the season without getting too late. Oh, I never will forget. Tucker bailed me out. It was on a Saturday. And, uh, and I called him. I was in a bind. It was in June, and, and pyrethroids were beginning to break down a little bit, and I was in a bind, and I had some live worms coming through me in June, and I was kind of scratching my head and doing more than scratching my head. I was pulling my hair out. I called Tucker at his house. I said, Tucker, I got a, I'm, in, I'm in trouble here, man. I said, I, got, I need some help. He said, let me tell you what you do. You spike it with a half a pound of Curacon. And I said, I'll do it. And I put it out. I think that was a Friday or Saturday morning or something like that. And I went back into it Monday, and I called him. I said, "Woo, you got him, brother. You got me out of trouble. Never will, I never will forget. That was early 80s or, or well, mid-80s, maybe something like that. He said, you spike it. <laughs> you remember yeah, we that, used, We used to call Curacon. Curacon was eight-pound material. And my, one of my favorite sayings is, what you going to use? I said, we're going to use the snowman. <sighs> because of the, the figure, figure eight, eight, we call Curacon the snowman. And it was bad news. I remember that jug being <laughs> heavy. I know that. <laughs> See, I have nothing to add. I know. What's so, that's what no, I was going to say. I, I and I don't have. Taking it all. And I, I was going to say, all right, we, we've got two well-established entomologists in a room. You've both been checking cotton for quite a period of time. What's the biggest technological advancement? in cotton production that you've seen over the course of your career? First one comes to mind was BT Cotton, the first one. Yeah, BT Cotton and some of the some of the older guys, some of the farmers thought that Roundup was, Roundup Ready. I can remember my dad, he had a he had a eighty acre field, kind of real sandy ground and it was Johnson grass and it still is. But Johnson grass was so bad that uh, you know, you, you could disc that ground one time and then it was so sandy that the next time you tried to do anything to it, the disc would slide, you know. So you couldn't chop up the rhizomes. First thing that came out was uh, the recirculating sprayer. Before then, we were all sitting on the front of a tractor with spot sprayer spraying it. And then they came out with the Tom, recirculating sprayer. you ever seen one of those? A recirculating sprayer? No, one of the ones with uh, the seat on the front for them the to do The seat on the front. No, I don't think I've seen that. <laughs> all right, just in, in your mind, picture that going through the field and water furs, and then I'll just leave it. Yeah. But, Unbelievable. But, but then when when they 
<laughs> Look at his brain turning. I can see. Him right <laughs> and then when they finally came, when they finally came out with Roundup Ready, or even some of the early uh, graminicides, like what were some of the early ones? The first fusillade. Fusillade came out. I never will forget a, one of my dad's workers. Uh, he'd been fighting that Johnson grass for so many years and so long with hose and spot spraying and all that, and we came out with fusillade and. My dad had the whole field sprayed with fusillade with an airplane. We're sitting around the shop, and, and it did a really good job at the time. We're sitting around the shop, and Mose Johnson was sitting there reading the paper. And I kiddingly said, hey, Mose, what did you do to that Johnson grass out there? And he said, airplane. <laughs> What's an airplane? <laughs> airplane got it. <laughs> and when fusillade first came out, I was doing um, some of my master's research with it and had a typo in my research paper. Instead of flu as a fop, we got type flu as a flop. Swear to God, true story. <laughs> and nobody caught it except during my defense and Wayne Cole. Dr. Wayne Cole picked it up. He said, flu as a flop, huh, Jeffrey? <laughs> I never will forget that. <laughs> you know, if that was the first one of those herbicides, so the you know, Fusillade, Assure, Select, then I'm pretty sure Fusillade was the first one. It's the first one that I remember, of course, I was a little bitty guy, at that point, but that probably also Tucker would have been the first herbicide that you could safely spray over the top of cotton. Yeah, it was. You put MSMA over the top or cotton yeah. over the top, but it was going to hammer. You're going to burn it. It's going to burn it. Yeah. There were other things back down the line too that weren't any safer than those were. Yeah. They were so glad to get rid of those recirculating sprayers and all that kind of thing, man. <laughs> well, they didn't work. They worked better than anything else you had. But yeah, they, they, did, they didn't they work. work. And we had the wick bars that you'd rub. Oh it yeah. And I used to love setting a, a cultivator with a direct spray under there with MSMA and pre-merged three dinitro, dinitro aniline, or dinitro phenol. All right, so, so Tom, I, um, imagine the EC prowl. Mm. All right, so the the older prowl, you know how it stain your pants yellow. Oh, All yeah. right, take that and multiply it by a hundred. Yeah, at least. <laughs> oh, and the that aroma stuff was bad. It would to take, the bone. and it would take your breath. And I used to love picking up that aroma like that. Who knows what it was doing? We're still here, but but that dinar and you could paint it. You could get up under that cotton and you could paint it and set your cultivator. Do you know how high you're hitting it up on that bark on that stem? <laughs> True story. MSMA and dinitro. So God, we old Tucker. I know it. <laughs> and I just remember it. I just remember seeing it. Never did anything. I was too little to have done anything. I like, did the math a minute ago. If Tucker's got 55 cotton crops and I've got 45, that's 100 years of cotton. That's, a, that's 100 here. years of experience. A century of cotton of sitting here. Unreal. And the things that you've seen, uh, the, the younger generation, we, we sit here, Jason, we talk about this pretty regularly. You remember when you got your first cell phone, and I've heard consultants y'all's age talk about having a rotary phone in their vehicle that still had a cord on it. So just imagine what the next 10 years are going to bring, or 20 years. Well, one thing that I thought about when you said BT cotton and then round a pretty cotton, or Jeff said BT cotton, but y'all, either one of y'all, You've got just about as many years pre-BT and pre-Roundup Ready as you do post-Roundup Ready. And I've said this in here before, but me being work-age professional doing this kind of stuff, I'm 100% Roundup Ready and BT. But I also, all my growing up years were before all that. So, I mean, I was full-grown. I was in college when both of those technologies came out. So I still at least know what it looked like before all that but i think 
either one or both of those, you can make a case for, at least in all of our careers, the greatest advancement in southern agriculture, uh, more than likely, particularly in cotton, because Roundup Ready transcends the other crops too. A question that I have for either one of you, aside from the obvious, the BT with the suppressing the budworms and then Roundup helping with the weed control, how did either one or both of those technologies influence farming in Mississippi and then maybe the way y'all do business too? I know it kept the cotton farmers in business when, when we could control the tobacco budworm. We were on a, a runaway train as far as spending hundreds of dollars for insect control, $130, spraying them 9, 10, 11 times, and still, still taking damage, you know. That kept us in business for a little while longer. Oh, after 95, had we not had uh, BT cotton come out the next year, I don't know had it, whether we've even planted it. It was it, we were out of control. It was the uh, tobacco yeah. budworm was about to put us out of business. Well, I, I still say we're still paying for ninety five, yeah. and uh, in compared to some other parts of the state and other states, pale in comparison to the damage they took. But was, the innovations and the things that have taken place in our span of chicken, cotton has just been remarkable from traits to. Even equipment, you know, I can remember the first cotton picker I drove, and probably the last one I ever drove was a two-row 622 international picker that you had to sit there and look over the thing and control each head. And Didn't even have a closed cab, I bet. And a lot of them didn't. Yep. It was wild. Look at what they got now. We had two two-row pickers on our farm. and It'd take us all, you know, I don't know how long it'd take us to finish picking a cotton crop. And uh, well, there was and, many of uh, Thanksgiving dinner uh, eating on a on the on the cotton picker. Oh and, yeah, and then sometimes even Christmas sc- scrapping or doing whatever. That was that was the goal to get through at Thanksgiving so you could go to the hunting camp. Yeah. <laughs> and now they're getting through picking cotton sometimes uh, first week of October. Tom, are you familiar with scrapping cotton? Is that a term you've heard? I have. Okay. I was just uh, no, no, no. You're you're okay. I wasn't making light. I didn't. No, you're it. you're fine. That's uh, you can. Poke, but I mean, that was poke a, fun at the Yankee. That was a thing until relatively recently. Right. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, recently. Yeah. My daddy one time, I remember. I can't remember how many acres of cotton he had, but he had never averaged two bales. Just back in the day, he wound up got through picking, and he had nine hundred ninety-five pounds. He made the two guys driving the cotton pickers go back out there and scrap cotton. <laughs> he said, y'all don't quit until we get to 1,000. And, and they finally did. They scrapped for I don't know how many days and finally got enough to make that average 1,000. Diesel was a little bit different <laughs> price. Diesel was a little yeah, cheaper back then. Yeah, a whole lot cheaper back in those yeah. days. Yeah. Wow. I can remember a lot of old-timer sayings, you know, like, yeah, I'd ride a cotton picker. And a planter, an old international planters had a big board and a bar that you could stand behind the planter on that board and walk around and look and make sure every planter was planting and such as that. And you're, oh, the, I, you're the seed monitor. A seed monitor, yeah. Oh, I never <laughs> will forget the story that um, tractor pulls up to the end, they're loading seed and lifts up, the, you know, hopper number one, pour seed in, hopper number two, put seed in, hopper number three, get to number four, they just put the lid back on, don't put any seed in. Go to number five, put seed in, say, wait a minute, wait, 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 you didn't, you didn't put any in number four. So no, it hadn't eaten any all day long. <laughs> Hell, it ain't planting. <laughs> so, that's funny. One thing that you said, Tucker, 
that I think is important for folks that listen to us. The number of times that we would spray years ago compared with now. And Jeff, John Hartley, in the episode that we did with him, he made a real point that it's about being profitable. It's not about necessarily controlling every single bug or every single weed or every single pathogen, Tom. It's about being profitable. And I think people see modern production agriculture and maybe they drive down the highway and they see the sprayers running or they see the airplanes flying and they think it's just go and spray and just spray everything, kill everything, and it's not. Nothing and it's, further from and the it's, truth. Right. And it's even much more so now than a number of years ago, particularly when y'all were just getting going, when you really didn't have a choice. It was kill it all or kill none of them, right? right. I mean, the, the stuff that you had access to, you either had to kill everything or you wouldn't, you weren't going to kill anything and, and therefore not have a crop. But the products that we have now are so specific and really so safe Right, right. That it's just a big time evolution in agriculture. Whether it's uh, birds, pollinators, uh, mammalian toxicity, these compounds have evolved to, they're light years ahead of oh, where, of where we, used we to, were. We used to put out pounds per acre of stuff, and now it's like tenths of ounces, 0.05 right. pounds. Yep. So we've reduced the total amount of AI actives into the environment. And uh, we're practicing pest management, spraying only when needed, where needed, and with the proper safe chemistry. I mean, we've we've come light years as far as safety and everything else from what we used to do. Well, and you two just covered two of the more important technologies as well. When you introgressed that genetics into the whole entire situation, think about what you were able to do. You reduced the overall input of some of the more toxic herbicides in those particular situations, and you relied mostly for the better the part of that period of time on the traits mm-hmm. to then just apply those particular products that that particular crop covers with those particular traits. And then with the BT as well, it's done the same thing. We you, just supplement the, the technology now. Most of my examples are herbicides, right? But we mentioned fusilade. Another one, family that came out about that same time was the ALS herbicide. So my papa... I think he made 60 crops in his farming career. And when Classic came out, you're talking about tenths of an ounce, stuff like that. So Classic, Tom, comes in like it was probably like an eight-ounce bottle. It's a little bitty bottle. It's the rate's a quarter ounce per acre. And my papa used to carry that on the seat of his truck because he's used to hauling cases and, and everything. It's you know, like just, carrying yeah, gold. pounds yeah. of stuff. Some of those dry cotton insecticides that, that he had used that come in 50-pound sacks. Yeah. This stuff came in a little bitty eight-ounce bottle. Little I remember, vials, yeah, remember almost like from it. the drugstore. Uh, yeah, because you want to lose it. You don't, <laughs> don't want to, you want to blow it out of the back of the truck. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, we've seen a lot of changes. And probably we'll see just as many more in the next 20, 30 years. I mean, I don't know how many more sunrises we'll get to see, but, I mean, what weed species will take over? I mean, the, the resistant pigweeds and Johnson grass back in the day. Uh, what's next? Who knows what? Novel species will take over at some point, but there will be something. You know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. We replace the uh, the boll weevil with the plant bug or stink bugs. It's the same way with 
with weed issues, and there'll be in plant diseases. There'll be another one. There'll be something new. And I, and I probably hadn't said it near as much on this podcast as what I do when I make presentations and whatnot. But nature's a balancing act, and that's exactly what you're talking about. That you knock one thing out of that system, and what comes in behind that may not necessarily be something you factored into the equation to begin with. Exactly. Mother Nature will fill a void if there's one to be filled. She'll do Man, it. And ain't no doubt. <laughs> for sure. She is resilient for sure. With all the talk we've had about technology, what other innovations within agriculture do you think have been profound? Varieties in all crops. Cotton, we would make five, six, seven hundred pounds, eight hundred pounds. Soybeans, we would ring a bell back in the day on the early, early varieties when we made 35 bushels, 30 bushels. Varieties now are so far above in yield. Your your cotton making 1,200, 1,300 pounds. Soybeans, a hundred bushels per acre or maybe more in some, in some instances. These yields, Tucker, we never dreamed of these yields 25 years ago. Never. Never did. And that's what's so exciting about doing what we do is we get to to look at these new varieties. And then we get to look at where we need to place them on our different farms, farmers, different soil types, different traits. And it's, it's something to learn every year. I mean, every day you're out there, you're always constantly learning and it's a it, challenge to keep up with it. It too. is, but it's fun. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's yeah. not the same thing every day. You're gonna be you're gonna be hit with a different problem or a different scenario, and say, "Well, I wonder how I'm gonna work through this one." And you and we work through it with the help of you guys from Extension. Y'all are testing, and we're out there in the field looking to see what fits on our place. And it's just a lot of fun to me. I think vaguely, <laughs> I remember somebody describing a potential corn variety that would have seven ears per stalk with yields approaching 500 bushels per acre. I don't know if y'all have heard anything like this, but where where is the next level five years, 10 years, 20 years from now? Not just for food and fiber production to feed the world if they can afford it, if we can somehow feed everyone, but where are these yields with genetics going down the road? I mean, with cost of production, all our costs are exponentially going up also, so we've got to compensate with producing more on fewer acres. But where where's the yield going? What, what are we going to see at some point down the road? Are we going to see 500 bushel corn or 150, 200 bushel soybeans? What, what are y'all's thoughts? Trent was in here a, a few weeks ago. It was about time we got started good into cutting beans. That'd be right. We've broken the statewide yield record. However many times in the last 10 years, I don't remember what number he said. Maybe like six out of 10 years. That sounds about right. It was, it was a pretty excessive so the, number. The statewide record, or the statewide average right now is what, 54 bushels, Tom? I think I is what he said. I think it's 54, 54 and a half, something along that order. To be 54, that means there's a lot that are in that 100 range, like what you described, Jeff. And then, of course, there's some lower, too. But to get to an average... Of 54. On 2.2 million acres? Right. And then to raise that bar, if it was six out of 10 years, even if it wasn't six, even if it was four, but to raise that bar that many times in a decade, I mean, that's certainly a reflection of a whole lot of things. And then, you know, the latest thing we were talking about varieties is, is certainly one of them. I don't know where it goes. I mean, the boy in Georgia cut 
whatever he cut. I don't remember what that number was now, but it's a, a crazy high number. And of course, you see the farm publications with the corn yield records too. That, right. that four thirty or yeah, whatever come, it is come and go pretty regularly, just astronomical. And a lot of times those are yield contest plots, so they're not farm wide. But still, the it just shows you where the bar is and, right. and, and what is possible. Maybe maybe improbable on large scale, but it, it's at least possible. So I, to answer your question, Jeff, I don't know, man. It's going to be feel, It feels like the sky's the limit, but yeah. yeah I would echo that. I, I think I think breeding and genetics has a big, they've got a great distance to go in some cases, but I think they're making progress in those directions, and that's and it's exciting. All, it's all crops, wheat, rice. Everything is, you know, they're they're working more and more to produce more out of this, and, it, and it's not just the variety; it's the the management thereof, the management that goes into that too. You can have the best racehorse in the world, but if it's you don't have a rider, well, she ain't gonna make it. Guys, we appreciate it. I'm glad we had the idea this morning when y'all were here at the station, and we certainly appreciate you taking your ent- entire afternoon and spending with us over here because I know you weren't planning on doing that when you came this morning. So thank you all so much. I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, well and we, we appreciate y'all. We appreciate the working relationship we have oh, with y'all. Oh, absolutely. And the rest of the agricultural consultants in this state. It, it's a it's a nice, tight-knit family. It and really we, is. Yep. We all do a really good job of working together, yeah. and that's it's and a great we, place to work. And if we can do anything for you, your staff, university don't hesitate to call us we'll do anything we can to help you in your endeavors also just keep that research coming we need it yeah anytime y'all need to come any of our crops to put out traps tom you know oh yeah i I I saw your trap picture the other day we appreciate it (laughs) tucker when it turns cooler not cold but cooler next week if you make some tamales if you need some taste testers. I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> Give us a holler. I'll do it. He's the best. Thank yep. y'all. Thank you. Thank you. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension. Mississippi.